Thank you for that wonderful song. I heard a few men in the college when the singers walked up saying, yeah, yeah. When the preacher walks up, they get real quiet. Just discern the spiritual level, you know. Some men get excited about food. Some men get excited about music. Some men get excited about preaching. That's what I'm talking about right here. No, it's, it's all right. It's all right. No problem at all. But uh, anyways, I just, uh, just, just observing things this morning, and I'm glad to see you today. You've had a great, great missions conference. I tell you, uh, my heart has been blessed and warmed by the uh, missions conference. And, uh, you know, when you hear some of the things and see some of the things that we've seen, uh, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't warm you up a bit, I just, I just wonder if you have a pulse, because it was certainly a challenge to my heart. Uh, we're going to turn in a moment to the scriptures. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you. I'd like you to take out a piece of paper and a pen. I want to just give you some kind of pastoral thoughts this morning and ministry thoughts that might be a help to you. I haven't really had a chance this semester maybe to just share some things practically in chapel, so I'd like to do that this morning. And how many of you um, enjoyed singing a moment ago uh, the song, So Little Time? And uh, some of you, who knows who wrote the song? Anybody know who wrote it? John R. Rice wrote it, and uh, Dr. John R. Rice is one of the uh, early men who came out of the Southern Baptists like Dr. Siss did uh, when they were denying the inerrancy of the scriptures and so forth, and Dr. Rice really brought the term soul winning and the practice of soul winning back into the rightful place of many Baptist churches. I remember meeting Dr. Rice on a few occasions. He preached at the church where I grew up, and Every time he'd shake someone's hand, he'd shake their hand, and he would say this, are you saved? Kind of a strange way, isn't it? Not how are you doing, but are you saved? And a uh, great soul winner, and uh, thank the Lord for, for our heritage, for men who've passed down these principles like soul winning. And I told you who wrote the song, because someday you've got to tell somebody who wrote the song. You need to learn a little bit of the history of our, of our faith, of our music, and, uh, and the richness of it. And even, uh, even the verse in that song, and I know it maybe isn't a Sunday morning worship song, but that line that says, to save someone from the burning, you're not going to find that in CCM. Uh, you know, they're not even going to talk about hell, because that's not happy. Uh, and hell isn't happy, but it's in the Bible. So some, some of these old songs, they kind of bring us to the reality of really what the ministry is all about. And uh, so we learn about the songs. We maybe learn a little bit about the authors. And you're saying, well, are they infallible with Scripture? Of course not. Uh, but they're a part of our heritage, and many of these songs have a very biblical depth. So I appreciated that, Brother Tyler. Thank you so much. So I'm going to give you a quick challenge this morning, just a practical kind of a challenge today and just some things. Uh, I like to take time uh, and sometimes just share chapel quotes or sayings. So let me just give you this little topic here today, 10 priorities for 21st century ministers. I'm going to give you 10 priorities for 21st century ministers and ministry. Now, the world in which you will minister and are ministering is suspicious and unbelieving. Uh, there was a time when the pastor in America, oftentimes there was, you know, kind of the first Baptist church downtown, and they had this green lawn in the, in the middle and maybe a Civil War statue and a parsonage next to the church. And the pastor was always invited to everything. You know, he was kind of 
a part of the fiber of the culture. And, uh, and in fact, our second president said, uh, John Adams said, it is the duty of the clergy to bring in their discourses comments on the issues of the day. In other words, it was expected that the pastors were a part of the moral fiber of the culture. Well, now we live in a day when many of their watchword is resist, and there's a pushback, and sometimes it's actually been brought upon ourselves by fallen evangelists, pastors, scandals in the church, and so forth. And so because of that, rather than entering into a time where people are like, oh, you're the new young pastor, welcome, you might, you might enter into a time like, what are you doing here, you know, type of a feeling. So how do you, how do you handle that? And really for my ministry, uh, these last, uh, I guess I've been preaching about 37 years now and pastoring here 32 years, I've really watched that, that morphing of the culture from the kind of, you know, more of the respect to the disrespect type of, a, of an era in which we live. And it's probably before that been another cycle. You know what I mean? There's probably someone would have said back in the 60s during the hippie era, it's worse than ever. Nobody respects authority. So it's probably a cyclical thing. But no doubt the culture that you're in right now uh, is suspicious at best and unbelieving at worst. So what should we do uh, in light of the culture in which we serve. I want to give you 10 quick thoughts. Number one, you really need to have, number one, a real walk with God. A real walk with God. A personal walk with God. I'm just telling you that putting on a suit and walking around with your King James Bible and being in Bible college, if it's just all of a show, you're not going to be able to sustain some of the hatred and some of the suspicion and some of the challenges that come. It's, you're going to have to have a walk with God because society will disappoint. They're not going to be welcoming to you. But Jesus never fails, right? Uh, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Galatians 5 says we're to walk in the Spirit. And so it's important for a pastor, a minister today to have, number one, a real walk with God. Number two, it's important that we walk as servant leaders, that we recognize that Really, uh, Christianity never was intended to be this idea of just a bunch of big shots anyways. But if you'll study Philippians 2, you'll find that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Let's say that together. Made himself of no reputation, and he took upon him the form of a servant. Let's say that together. Took upon him the form of a servant. Now, I was riding on Southwest Airlines a few years ago, and their CEO at the time uh, by the name of Kelleher, wrote an article on servant leadership. And he said, this is what sets Southwest Airlines ap apart. And they really are a great airline. If you ever have ridden Southwest, they're pretty friendly and they're not uh, real stuffy. They're, they're, they serve and they have a good attitude. One time I was in the back of Southwest Airlines with some preachers coming back from a meeting somewhere. And, and um, the stewardess was just trying to be friendly and she was giving us Coke and peanuts, and you know, we, someone said, yeah, we're really hungry. We had to miss dinner to catch the plane, and, and she brought this like whole plastic bag of peanuts. I mean, it must have been a hundred bags of them. We just sat there eating peanuts the whole way, you know, from wherever we were, and, and uh, just the spirit of service. Well, I really believe that in, in this day in which we minister, while we want to keep the pulpit hot and we want to have strong biblical preaching, What's going to make the difference in the culture is if we have a heart to serve, whether it's 
whether it's police officers, whether it's single parents, whether it's, uh, you know, just being involved in, in various forms in the community, and just in, in your attitude. If you walk around with a pharisaical attitude and your first comment is always something cutting or harsh, you're not going to get an inroad, okay? And I was talking with Brother Mead this morning at breakfast, and we were talking about how does he get a relationship going with a Muslim? And he said, boy, a lot of times it's just over a meal, and it's just talking about uh, things. And he said, even trying to find something in common. And I said, well, what do you have in common with a Muslim? I mean, they can have four wives. We don't have that in common. The Koran doesn't have the word love in it one time. And that's kind of my nature. My nature is sometimes to find out what we don't have in common. He said, well, one thing we have in common is Muslims don't drink, and fundamental Baptists don't drink. So he says, a lot of times I tell them that when we're having a meal. And, and he says, I, I try to find something that I like about the country or talk about something about children. And, but he's, what, he's, what he's telling me is he's having a servant's heart uh, toward them. Number three, it's very important as you get out in the ministry that you are a team worker. It's very important that you learn how to follow the leadership of the pastor but also work with others on staff. Uh, others that are lay leaders in the church, that you come from West Coast Baptist College, hopefully with, uh, and as I told one of our missionaries this week, and I personally believe this, and you can quote me on it, it may not make everybody happy, but I believe West Coast Baptist College has the best balance of solid academics and real-life ministry exposure of any college in the United States of America. I, I believe that we have been blessed with a local church environment, a soul winning environment, but also great and solid academics. And all of you who are attentive know that that's just improving all of the time. And, and when I think about that, I think about the fact that as we come together in a team concept, that it's very important that we, whether it's college staff and church staff or school staff, that we work together, that we kind of flow in with one another. For example, if it's college days, we might change some things on the school calendar. If it's youth conference, we might adjust some things on the college calendar. Uh, if it's Easter, we all pitch in. But whatever it is, we don't walk around and saying, I just, this is my thing. I do music, buzz off. I don't do soul winning. No. Uh, we all have the spirit of a team here, striving together for the faith of the gospel of Philippians 127. All right, number four. It's very important in today's ministry environment that you avoid the very appearance of evil. That you avoid the very appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. And I just this morning saw an article about uh, a Catholic priest that uh, molested a child. And I've heard about that with Southern Baptists and Independent Baptists. Every single group, right? Sometimes you hear about someone that fell into some type of sin. And I, I don't have time to develop all of this, but let me just say very clearly that with your internet use and your computer, make sure that you have every kind of a protection and a filter and accountability. Uh, and don't ever be afraid of that in your internet use. Avoid the appearance of evil. Um, I haven't counseled ladies in this church since we started. Uh, never have. No prolonged counseling. Uh, my wife counsels them, Mrs. Furso counsels, other staff ladies counsel. Sometimes we've had a few ladies that have just had a traumatic, like a husband left, and they needed to know some things from their pastor, and I understand that. And so my wife comes in and sits with us, 
and sometimes maybe Mrs. Furso, my secretary, will sit there and we'll talk about legal issues and, and you know, how do they pay the bills and how do they get the kids in school. But we, we want to always remember in this day when people are so suspicious and when there's been so many problems to avoid the very appearance of evil. That's why every office in our ministry has windows on the door. We just have tried to have a transparency, and I highly recommend that to you in the ministry. Um, maybe, maybe you're just uh, working with teenagers, and, and you just ask one of the other men there, just say, listen, if I'm ever talking to someone, and, and uh, maybe, maybe just talking to a couple of young ladies, and, and everyone else leaves the auditorium, would you make sure just to stay with me, and just kind of help me in those areas, and be so very careful. All right, number, number next, number five. Uh, be sure that you walk with financial integrity. Financial integrity. I mean, if you're given $20 to buy water balloons for camp and they cost $17.75, then you make sure that you bring that $2 and a quarter back <clears throat> along with the receipt and the balloons to whoever sent you to buy the balloons. Learn to be faithful in the very small things. In our ministry, we have a purchase order system, so people have to apply for an amount, and it has to be approved before they can spend it, and then they have to bring receipts back. Uh, and ev everything I do, and I'm, I'm the senior pastor of the church and so forth, but everything that I do that's a ministry expense, I write it out very carefully. Um, it's posted on a credit card statement or a cash reimbursement statement, and it's, record, it's reviewed quarterly by our audit committee, which is comprised of some of the deacons of our church. And I want them to check and to see what I do. So I want to I challenge you to always be very careful in the matters of finance. We don't have uh, cash boxes around here much. We don't like to have a lot of cash boxes. We try to avoid that. Uh, carrying a lot of loose cash. And just, uh, if you ever watch me, if someone comes to me out in the foyer, and some people are really funny this way, especially new Christians, they'll come up and they'll be so proud of their first offering, you know. And they'll write it on the envelope, like $12 or something, you know. They'll go like, I just wanted to make sure that this got in the offering plate. And I want to say, well, that's why we pass them in church, you know. <laughs> but they want you to see it. And it's cute, you know. They want the pastor to know that they gave something. But I, I never take it. I always say, oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. And, uh, and I'll say, there's, there's always normally standing next to me uh, a couple of our deacons. And I'll always say, give it right here to Brother Alvarez. And to the best of my ability, I've tried not to handle uh, the cash at all in that way. All right, number next. Always follow the laws of the land. Follow the laws of the land. Romans 13, 1, be subject unto the higher powers. Now, there's many thoughts that come to my mind. I could mention, for example, the safety of the bus ministry. I could mention the fire department. And I know some independent Baptists, they just want to fight that all the time. Like, bless God, they're trying to tell us what to do. They're trying to save your stupid life. <laughs> it's okay to put fire extinguishers in. It's okay for the highway patrol to check your buses. There's, there's very, there, there are times that are coming in ministry when we'll have to say, I'm going to have to obey God rather than man. And, and we're talking about if they try to tell us what to preach about when life began, right? And, and, but I'm not talking about those things. I told you guys there's power in preaching. I know some of you guys... 
you get excited about the music all you want, but preaching's where it's at, I'm telling you. So, But uh, if there's any freshmen wondering what that is, we have a lot of Air Force around here, and every once in a while they break the sound barrier. Probably as General Tykert up there having fun is what it was. So, But uh, that's what that is when that happens. But it's very important that we report uh, these types of things, whether it's bus, whether it's fire. And listen very carefully. Every one of you that are in ministry right now, and when you're in the full-time ministry, you are what is called a mandatory reporter. That means if there's a child that says to you, you know, my stepdad has done something wicked to me, that you would bring that immediately to the staff and our church immediately calls the police. We, we've called the police many times. And sometimes it turns out, matter of fact, most of the times it turns out to be the kid was kind of like confused or using a term that he didn't know what it meant. But, but the thing of it is, it's not for me, and some pastors make this mistake, they try to become the police, investigate it, and decide whether or not to turn it in. That's not how the laws are written. You call the police and you let them do it. And uh, that's how we've handled it here for 32 years, and I've got a file where we've done that over the years if we've heard something, whether it's a bus kid, a car crowd kid, whatever. So you're a mandatory reporter. I've had to break fellowship even from a few churches that just don't handle these things right. And for example, I would never recommend someone, and we've been blessed, we've never had a staff member that has done something like that, uh, and, and very little in the way of, of scandals or problems like that for 32 years. But, and I'm talking about in the areas of moral indiscretion, and thankfully very, very few things. But let me say this. If, if there's something like that that I know of, I will never recommend someone to go pastor another church. It's a disqualification. The Bible says that a pastor's to be blameless, right? So you're a mandatory reporter, and always remember that. And especially in today's society and the Me Too movement, all these things coming up. And they say, well, have you heard about things in other ministries? Sometimes we hear about things. I can't be responsible for every other ministry, but I have to be responsible for where I serve. And you're going to be responsible as well. So uh, remember to be uh, following the laws of the land. All right, number seven. In, in this 21st century ministry environment, you must learn to think administratively. You must think administratively. Romans 12.11 says, we're not to be slothful in business. Not slothful in business. Let's say it together. Not Now, whether that is your calendar, whether, look at, your, your free time needs to be scheduled. You can't just say, I'm going to hang out with Joe today. No. If you're going to spend time with Joe, you determine how much time. Because time is life. So you've got to schedule your work time, your school time, your study time, your time with friends. But it's, it's got to be scheduled. And the same thing with budgets and finances. It, many times in Bible college, you'll have a student, they can't pay their bill, they can't pay other bills, but they're going out eating fast food all the time, they're buying rims for their tire, they're buying a new phone, whatever. If, if The Bible says it this way, if a pastor cannot manage or rule his own house well, how can he rule the house of God? So, so I'm not expecting you to be time management gurus today, but you need to learn while you're in college. 
how to discipline your time and your finances. And you're going to make mistakes. I understand that. But there needs to be a progressive growth in this area. And whether you use a computer program, there's several with the Apple programs and, or the Outlook program that we use for a lot of calendar things here. Or if all you have is a passion and a three-by-five card that you diligently uh, administrate your time and your resources in life. It's so very important. All right? Uh, number eight. A priority in 21st century ministry is that you maintain a heart of compassion and love. It's so important that we don't just get professional. I, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of churches today that seemingly are being started with the idea of how can we find somebody that kind of has had a bad experience in their church and get them to go to our church? You know, how can we tell them, we understand grace better, we understand this better, and just trying to get people that are disenfranchised people from other churches. But you know what? I'm always glad when someone comes from somewhere else, but I don't go looking for that. A lot of times they're going to get trouble. Men, preachers, listen to me. When someone comes to you bad-mouthing their last pastor, don't listen. Because it will be just time before they're bad-mouthing you. I've had them come and say, yeah, yeah, I was down at this church and the pastor, blah, 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 blah. I'll say, whoop, stop right there. Stop right there. I'm very sorry that it didn't work well for you there. I don't even know the man. But unless he's been doctrinally unsound or a moral failure or something he's still a pastor and he deserves respect and you either need to get that right with him or forgive him but as for me I'm not going to let you dump your trash into my mind about him say well what if he doesn't go to your church I need new members in my church I could care less if I say that to him and he's offended and doesn't come I probably just save myself from a problem I, and probably what I did was I probably just helped him to realize something about the office of the pastor. And that's been lost today. And I said earlier, we should be servants. And I believe that. But I also believe that we should respect the office of the pastor. Okay? So, so don't just try to get people out of other churches and get a bunch of disgruntled people in your church. But have compassion to go win the loss to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what if someone comes and they really did have a bad experience in the other church? Then compassionately help them to grow in grace. Uh, but it's not your responsibility to hear and repeat about the last situation. It just doesn't help them, and it will not help you in the long run. Okay? Next. In the 21st century church, we must have a world missions mindset. A world missions mindset. The world is getting smaller and smaller. And with air travel and with international crises, you know, they're debating right now about immigration. There's 10,000 people walking here from Honduras. You know what? I, I personally believe that people should immigrate legally. That's my personal belief. But to be honest with you, you're not going to hear about that from Lancaster Baptist Church pulpit. It's not, to me, a biblical issue. In our Spanish department, I have no idea. I mean, if they had 1,000 people over there Sunday, they might have had 200 people, Brother Weaver, that are illegal. I don't know. We don't check on the way in. 
that's not really my thing. And we, we're not a sanctuary you know, city either. We're not advertising, hey, let us help you break the law. But my point is this. When somebody walks on the campus here, we're going to treat them with dignity. Amen. We're going to try to tell them about Jesus Christ. Right, and, and what I want you to recognize is that the way the world's changing is you saw the International Choir two nights ago. I mean, there's people up there from 15 nations. And some of you, if you have the privilege of starting a church like in the greater Los Angeles area or the, the greater Seattle area or Houston or some of these major metropolitan areas, you're going to find you've got 50 different nationalities in your city. And, you know, one of the great things is seeing some of those people saved and actually going back to their own country and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And then finally, number 10, you must maintain a soul-winning passion. Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And again, I see so many young churches and they think a website and purple lights and, you know, whatever is just going to be drawing people in like a magnet, you know. Well, let me tell you what draws people in. Jesus Christ. The gospel. Loving people. Winning people to Christ. That's what God has called us to do. And so I just want to share those thoughts with you because ministry is an ever-changing landscape. And we have a, a world that kind of doesn't trust Christians a lot. And we sometimes have to earn that trust. And we have to, we have to really live with dignity and, and integrity in the ministry. hope something I said helped you. Would you stand, please? I'm not going to preach a long time. You've had a lot of preaching this week. But I just would like to give you a thought this morning from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm going to try to preach this message to you in 12 minutes. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> um, but I want to say this as we, as we think about God's word this morning, that God has given to us a pattern in this book for really what it means to get a burden for a city. And that's what I want to preach to you about. I want to preach to you about getting a burden for a city. Joshua Mead said, God called him to missions. I think he was age 13. He said, but while he was in Bible college, God put a place on his heart, Senegal, West Africa. And God burdened his heart. Now, I understand sometimes maybe an evangelist has a burden for a country and so forth, a burden for revival. But I want to speak to those men here that it's still possible for God to burden you for a city, to dream about a city, an entire city having the gospel given to them, an entire city knowing how to be saved. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and in verse number four, and it came to pass when I heard these words. What were the words? The words were the words that came to him from one of his brethren that Jerusalem was in reproach. The wall had been destroyed. He said, when I heard those words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. How many of you would agree with me that Nehemiah 
had a burden for a city. Let's pray together. Father, take these next few moments, and I pray that you would begin to bring into focus for some of our students all of the matter that they've heard this week about missions, that it would not just be a blur of, you know, love the world, but that it would begin to focus for someone here today to love a country, to love a county, to love a city, and to claim it for Christ, like these missionaries who are in Beijing and Manila and various different countries, Lord, would you begin to direct? And Father, help our students not to worry if they don't know exactly where to go at the end of chapel, but God, give them a burden to find a city and to reach people for Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Around 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. Many of, many of you have read the story of how the Jewish people were taken captive about a hundred years later, a remnant of people returned back to Jerusalem. And amongst the leadership was a man named Ezra who began rebuilding the temple. Preachers like Zerubbabel were preaching and builders were building. And the people had a place of worship, but the city was still in much distress. And the wall of the city had been torn down. And in those days, when the wall was torn down, there was really no guarantee that the whole structure of the temple wouldn't be decimated by the enemies at any particular time. And so Nehemiah was the man that God would use to build the wall around Jerusalem. Nehemiah, when he heard about Jerusalem, he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed many days. He was a man whose heart was broken for his hometown. A man whose heart was broken for the people of Jerusalem. He determined that he would return and that he would build a wall around Jerusalem. Now let me tell you something. Anybody can tear something down. Any idiot can tear something down. And I'll remind you this morning, you'll not go to any city in America and find a monument built to a critic. Nehemiah was not going to criticize Ezra. He was not going to criticize those in the palace there in Shushan. It was not uh, uh, of his a particular uh, desire or heart to be a critic. It was in his heart to be a builder. And you'll be one or the other in your life. You'll either be a critic of a builder or you'll be a builder that is too busy to criticize. Yeah. Amen. Now, think of, it, think of this with me. It took six years and eight months to build the trade towers in New York City. It took one hour and 42 minutes to tear them down. Six years to build them, two hours to tear them down. West Coast Baptist College is training builders who will go out and, by the grace of God, build churches for the glory of God. Of God. The Bible says the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. I want you to notice two or three things about Nehemiah. First of all, I want you to see Nehemiah's burden. The Bible says in verse number three, they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. I want you to see that Nehemiah's burden was for the people of Jerusalem. Nehemiah's burden was not so much for the art or the culture 
center of Jerusalem. And we hear a lot of new evangelicals today uh, and liberals who talk about, listen to me, who talk about redeeming the culture. And they talk about how can we bring the culture into the church and how can we be cool for the people. Well, Nehemiah's burden was not for the culture. He was not trying to redeem the culture. He was trying to see people redeemed and saved and given the opportunity to worship God. And we see that very clearly in verse number three. The remnant, that's who he was worried about. Those Jews that had started to go back, they were not safe. And he was burdened for the people. And he was burdened enough to pray. And he began to seek God. R.A. Torrey, who pastored in downtown Los Angeles for many, many years, uh, who wrote the book on personal work and soul winning. R.A. Torrey said, we are too busy to pray, so we are too busy to have power. And we have a great deal of activity, but accomplish nothing. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. And what I'm saying is this. You'll know that you have a burden for a city when you begin praying for that city. You'll know that you have a burden for something other than yourself, your looks, your money, your job, your friend. You'll know it's really on you when you're beginning to pray, truly pray that God will touch a city and a country and make a difference in that place. And, and if you ever get to the place of even fasting and you say, I, 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 just, I just don't have an appetite. I, 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 I just want to take the time that I would normally take to eat and I want to take that time to pray. You'll know that God is beginning to do a work in your heart and that you have a greater burden for a city. And then if you move from that place of fasting to really even confessing sin, and notice what Nehemiah does in verse number six. The Bible says uh, that Nehemiah says, Lord, uh, let thine ear be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee both now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. I had someone tell me not long ago, he said, I don't believe in confessing sin. I don't believe in asking forgiveness of God for my sin. I've never heard such a crazy thing in all my life. Listen, we understand we don't have to confess sin to get saved. We're already saved. We don't have to confess sin to have our account settled. Our account was settled long ago. But we do confess sin in order to maintain fellowship with God. You do go to your wife and say, I'm sorry. You do go to your dorm supervisor and say, I'm sorry. And here we see a man. And I'm telling you, when you get serious about seeing souls saved and reaching a city for God, you will not want anything to stand in the way of those people getting saved. And you'll say, Lord, if there's anything in my life as David did, Lord, search my heart and show me if there be any wicked way in me. And, and for some uh, young, uh, young man to say, well, I don't think I have to confess my sin. They'll have to talk to David about that up in heaven. There are whole chapters in the Bible where he confessed his sin to God. Why? Because he wanted God's power and God's blessing. And I'm saying someday there ought to be a man in this room who says, I want to reach a part of Los Angeles for Jesus. I want to reach a city in Japan for Jesus. I want to reach a city in China for Jesus. And you'll want that so bad that if there's any sin in your life, you will confess it and you will forsake it because you're a man with a burden for a city and you don't want to hinder the spirit of God in your life. This false teaching of grace that's producing a bunch of passive types of preachers and worldly types of Christianity that doesn't want to confess sin. I'm saying when you get serious for God, you're going to be saying, oh God, if there's anything in my life that's quenching your spirit, if there's anything in my life that's displeasing to you, God, take it away. I don't want to have anything between my soul and my Savior. I'm just saying Nehemiah had a burden for the people. He had a burden for this place called Jerusalem. I want you to notice, secondly, Nehemiah's battle. 
Nehemiah's burden brought him to a battle. Now, Nehemiah's burden was for the people. And his burden was for a city to have worship returned. But in order to see the wall built and the people protected, Nehemiah would have to learn how to battle against persecution. Men, women, if you're going to see something great done for God, you'll have to battle the persecution as well. I, I spoke about it a moment ago. The world is suspicious. They're negative. They're unbelieving. They're not going to say, welcome, we're so glad you've come to our city to tell us that we're sinners. Thank you for that. Thank you for coming to tell us that Jesus is the only way. Sometimes it will be just the opposite. Notice what happens in chapter 2 and verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it, speaking of, of Nehemiah's burden, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Oh, they didn't mind welfare if you're passing out food stamps or birth control. That's fine. But if you're going to pass out New Testaments or gospel tracts, that's going to bother the world in which you live. You see, if you'll just stay involved in the social gospel, and if you'll just serve pancakes at the mission, that's okay. But if you stand up and preach that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, there's going to be somebody in Los Angeles not real happy that you're saying those things. There'll be somebody in Seattle saying that you're a narrow-minded bigot for saying those things. And I just want to tell you, if you're going to build something for God, then you better be ready to battle. And there's going to come some difficult days. I don't suppose a day hardly goes by without somebody saying negative things about the ministry or trying to discourage me in some way. But I've got a greater burden in my heart than those things that might be said. There are a people, 500,000 of them in the Antelope Valley who need to know Jesus Christ. And God put that all over me when he brought me to this city. And I'm not going to let a critic set my agenda I'm going to let God Almighty set my agenda. When God calls you to a city, you're going to say that when those challenges come, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Nehemiah battled against the persecution. Nehemiah battled with a purpose, and it's so important. What was his purpose statement? Notice, if you would, in verse 10. It says, in verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly. Notice this now, that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Would you say that with me? Ready, begin. There was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Say it again. There was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Here come the bus workers. They're walking into our neighborhood. What are they coming for? They're seeking the welfare of these children. And we're not talking about just passing out food. We're talking about eternal life. This was his purpose. His purpose was to change the city. His purpose was to bring them back to a place where they might worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah had a burden for a city. And I pray this week that some of you have gotten a burden for some place. You may not even wind up preaching there, but some of you just need to know what it's like to have a burden enough to pray and fast and desire and seek God and confess sin. Somebody's got to get burdened for Los Angeles and somebody's got to get burdened for New York City and somebody's got to get burdened for Minneapolis and Houston and Seattle. Somebody's got to think about the fields white already on the harvest. You've got to feel something other than self-pity. Nehemiah had a burden. 
And that burden caused Nehemiah to begin battling and battling throughout this book. And then I want to just close with this. Nehemiah, Nehemiah had a blessing too. And God's going to bless those that are willing to bear a burden. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the wall was built and I had set up the doors, then I gave my brother Hananiah, Hananiah the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. Hey, I bet it was a great blessing for Nehemiah when the wall was finished. You know, i got to tell you what, I've, I've seen property purchase. What a blessing. Our church came out here and had a big picnic. We had a dust storm come up, and we're eating hamburgers, and the dirt was blowing on the hamburgers, and, and we were eating hamburgers full of dirt, praising God and having a great time. I remember we dedicated the North Building and this building and the Lori Thomason dorm and Martin Hall and on and on I could go. And I'm here to tell you something. Every one of those projects, every single one of those building projects, uh, the Sixth dorm and the Martin Hall, all of these projects were great burdens and great steps of faith. But always when we cut the ribbon, it was a great blessing to the glory of God. It's a blessing to see something built to the glory of God. My only thing I'm going to ask the Lord about when I get to heaven is, Lord... It only took Nehemiah 52 days to build that wall. It takes us 52 days just to get a permit. And he got the whole building done. In 52 days, they were done. The other blessing was the people were unified. Look at chapter 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. You could read it for the sake of time, but the Bible says he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, the men and the women and all those who could understand. Hey, listen, how many of you, hey, listen, 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 the, the wall's complete. I can see it in my mind, pristine as it stands there. The doors are brand new. I can smell the timber that had come in for the doors. I can just sense the glistening city of Jerusalem and that beautiful temple as it was constructed. And now Ezra, Ezra's come and he opens the book, he opens the Bible and everyone that could understand, men and women, hey, they're standing there and they're reading the law of God and they're reading the word of God. Hey, somebody ought to get a vision for a city today. I mean a city where all the people stand and they read God's word and they glorify and they praise God. I'm telling you, the rock and roll crowd has a vision for all of them gyrating to their rap music and their rock music and the abortion crowd has a vision for murdering the babies and I'm saying the liberal crowd has a vision for a one world church and I'm saying there's so many visions and why? Because there's not enough men of God with a vision to change a city with the word of God. When was the last time some of you men woke up in the middle of the night dreaming of preaching at the L.A. Coliseum? Maybe dreaming of preaching in a brand new auditorium. Maybe getting some rented building somewhere and having 45 and 47 and 51 and 32 and 101. When was the last time anybody in here thought about a city that needs Jesus Christ? Amen. Nehemiah was a man that got a burden for a city. That burden led him to a battle, and that battle led him to a blessing, and that's how life works in the ministry. Get a burden, go to battle, find a blessing. Get a burden while you're in college, go to battle, 
Some of you guys, when you're 25, go ahead, call me up. I'll be ready. I, I want to help every solid, Bible-believing, soul-winning graduate of this college. Call me anytime. Brother Chapel, I'm facing a battle. The city's fighting us. What do I do? I'm facing a battle. Uh, this press came out against us. What do I do? I'll be glad to help you. I want to help you battle because then one day you're going to call me, and you're 31, and you might say, Brother Chapel, hey, we're having a big day. We're dedicating our new building. We're shooting for 500 people. We'd like you to come and preach or pray or our sin doctor Rasmussen, and, and he wa- we want someone to come and help us dedicate. Listen, what I'm saying is you've got to get the burden. You've got to get out in battle, and the blessings will come if you'll stand in battle for Jesus Christ. No burden, no battle, no blessing. Many young people want the blessing without the battle. A lot of people say, well, I'd like to be in the ministry Here's how I'd like it to go. I'd like a new car, medical insurance, a good salary. How about if we go ahead and cancel Sunday night? If you don't mind, I'd prefer to not wear a tie. I'd like to just wear flip-flops, if you don't mind. Because ministry's all about me. I don't think that was Nehemiah's attitude. By the way... If you do go start flip-flop Baptist church, you probably won't have many prayer and fasting meetings. And you probably won't have many souls being saved. What I'm saying is we have enough people playing church. We need some men in this college to get a burden about building church. Get a burden for a city. And I don't mean this to be disrespectful to staff and to assistant pastors. They are as much a man of God as I am. But listen to me now. Some of you need to get enough faith, not merely to go work in a church for a year or two, but to get that experience and then get out and claim a city for Jesus Christ. Get a burden for a city. What has this missions conference been about? Listen, who's going to go to Montreal? Who's going to go to Toronto? Who's going to go to Vancouver? So I I just like to kind of get stateside in sort of a comfortable situation. That's fine, but where are the men who love preaching and love God and get a burden and battle and build something to the glory of God? That's why we started West Coast Baptist College. That's why I got up this morning at 3 o'clock. That's why we're asking men to help us financially to keep the tuition down. That's why we pray. That's why we preach. That's why we have tour groups. That's why we have chapel, not to entertain your generation, but to challenge you to get a burden and to battle and to build and to be blessed by God. You can stay in the nursery if you want, but some of you need to come on out of the nursery and say, I'm going to claim a city like these 25 missionaries are doing. Some of you ought to say, I'm going to be on that platform in two years. And by the way, any one of you, I don't care what your background, I don't care if your dad was a drunkard, I don't care if your parents broke up, I don't care if you're just newly saved. You graduate from West Coast Baptist College, you have strong convictions, you want to go somewhere and preach the Bible and win souls, you're welcome at our missions conference just like these 10 that you saw. Listen, if we could get 100 Caleb Cavanuses, if we could multiply that number, to God be the glory. And by the way, some of these West Coast graduates, all respect to the other missionaries in the room, we just can't hardly wait to support them heavily and get them out on the field. What I'm saying is there are some of us who want to help you in your battle. If you'll just get in the battle. 
There's preachers all over this country that would like to support you and help you and give you something to read and, and, and give you a pat on the back. There are, there are some of us that want to help you in the battle, but we can't help you in the battle when you're standing on the sideline. Get a burden for a city. I don't know why God gave me a burden for Lancaster. <laughs> I couldn't explain it to you. I just know he did. It's a crazy thing. And I don't go to the mall a lot because I'm telling you, it's for me, it's like visitation. I, I mean, if I go, I don't go to shop. You know why? Because it's about everywhere I go and everyone I see, I know them, and I'm glad I do. I went to a restaurant this morning, had breakfast with some of our men. Just about everyone in the restaurant at least had been to our church. You know what I'm saying? I want to saturate this city with the gospel. But every city needs a man with that vision and burden. Get a vision for a city. Get a burden. Start building. There's going to be some battles, but the blessings will come to the man who gets a burden for a city. Father, give us the burden, I pray. Oh, Lord, give us some men in this room that would say, I want to find a city, and I want to burn there the light of the gospel for Jesus. Give us some women that would stand with these men. Give us some teachers and some assistant pastors and youth pastors. But, God, we need some men that will get off the sideline and get out into the battle. Oh, Lord, give us some missionaries this week and some preachers. God, I think of last week, Brother Leversy and Brother Lamb these men that are claiming cities right here in California. And God, the missionaries in Africa, oh Lord, help, help our student body to get a burden for a city. Lord, some of them need to just know what a burden feels like, where they just think about it all the time, and they pray about it, they confess sin. And Lord, then, then bring them through the battles, Lord. And then I want to pray right now that you would anoint them. I, Lord, I haven't opened my eyes. I don't know who's kneeling here, but I pray that you would anoint and bless them. God, that they would see thousands upon thousands of people saved. May they not be looking for Easy Street Baptist Church, but may they be looking for a city that needs to hear the gospel. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm just going to ask the piano to play. No one's looking around. Would you get a burden? Get a burden for a city. Some of you from Canada, you need to get right back to Canada when you graduate and get to a city. Right back to the Philippines, perhaps. China, like Brother Ted. Others may go someplace unknown to them. Perhaps you'll go from Canada to Africa. I don't know. But find a city. Find a people who need the gospel. 